welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm very pleased to be talking today with Mark Galliotti. Mark is director of Mayak Intelligence, honorary professor at University College London, and senior associate fellow with the Royal United Services Institute. Mark has written a very impressive number of books, about 15 on my last count, but I may have missed a few there, Mark. Mark has a forthcoming, very timely book called Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine that will be coming out in November. But today we're actually discussing Mark's most recently published book, The Weaponization of Everything, A Field Guide to the New Way of War. Thanks for joining me today, Mark. Oh, my great pleasure. This book provides a wide-ranging overview of the way in which multiple areas have become instruments of warfare in recent years. The book covers crime, disinformation, lawfare, bribery, even the weaponization of culture. Whilst all of this might sound a bit overwhelming and depressing, I actually came away from the book feeling quite hopeful. And I felt that a key message of this book was that we need to really understand the terrain within which we're operating if we want to know how to respond. So I felt that this book was really a map that sketches the topography of this world in which we all kind of viscerally feel that we are situated, this kind of uncertain, complex terrain of the 21st century. So first of all, I wanted to ask, you've written quite a number of books and most of them, not all, but many of them have focused on the Russian context. So what motivated you to write this much more wide-ranging book on the global nature of warfare. I think what really drove me to it was, you know, particularly in the post-2014, post-Crimea and sanctions environment, there was so much, in my opinion, really rather loose talk about the Russians' playbook, and as if, frankly, Russia had invented something that was brand new, as if Russia was the only country that use these kind of tactics for non-kinetic, non-military forms of warfare. And so anyway, it started just out of a sense of sheer bloody-mindedness of saying, hold on a moment, I'm I'm not for a moment denying that the Russians are engaged in a multi-axis political war with the West, but rather than just thinking of this as somehow some kind of Russian pathology, we need to be thinking about actually that this reflects something much broader. A, it reflects a process that has been around as long as there have been states. And that's one of the reasons why recurring leitmotif within the book is drawing parallels with the Italian Renaissance, which just happens to be a period I'm interested in as well. But also to appreciate the degree to which this is a game which not only everyone can play, but everyone is playing. And the sooner we appreciate that, the sooner we realize, I mean, I, I like your, your notion of the book as being like a map. But in fact, these various continents and countries do fit on the same sheet, then I think the sooner we will all be in a much safer and better position. That's so interesting. And you really do feel that in the book that you're extrapolating these more sort of generalizable instruments. Something that really surprised me in the book was when you mentioned that you yourself actually coined the term 
Gerasimov doctrine, like talking about these sort of ideas that are floating around about Russia and what Russia might be doing and what their policies or their agenda might be. I've had discussions with a number of people who've mentioned the Gerasimov doctrine as if it's a thing that physically exists somewhere. How did that happen or what you sort of understood about the way in which narratives and stories can gain traction from that incident? Yeah, it was a fascinating and deeply, deeply depressing example of precisely how in the modern hyper-connected and hyper-rapid communication space, absolute nonsense can acquire massive and immediate traction. I mean, it goes back to, look, in, in 2013, the Russian chief of the general staff, General Gerasimov, who is an exceedingly competent and hard-nosed tank officer, but certainly not what one would consider one of the grand theoretical um, geniuses of, of the age, gave a speech. It, it's a speech at a particular sort of forum of military thinkers that the chief of the general staff, whoever he is, has to give every year. And no doubt it is farmed out to some member of his staff. There's no sense that this is a kind of a grand showcase event. Anyway, he gave this speech that was then reprinted in the Military Industrial Courier, a, a Russian newspaper of, I'm sure you can imagine, page-turning fascination to everyone. <laughs> and someone I knew, Robert Coulson at RFERL, former Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty radio station in Prague, came up with a translation and, you know, he was sending it around. And I thought, oh, this is actually quite interesting. And therefore, I put it on my, on my blog in Moscow Shadows. And look, because a blog is essentially an, an expression of personal vanity and you want people to read it, I gave this sort of the post a snappy title, you know, the Gerasimov Doctrine, because there was a lot of talk at the time of doctrines and such like. And look, I, I made it clear in the text that this was not a doctrine, which in Russian terms is a very, very specific term. And also that it wasn't Gerasimov's and that it didn't represent a sort of Russian new way of war. If anything, it was actually how Gerasimov was publicly interpreting what he thought of as the Western way of war, because the Russians, they look at things like the Arab Spring Risings, the color revolutions that took place in post-Soviet spaces. And instead of seeing them as natural and organic risings against corrupt, unresponsive governments, instead they see the hand of the CIA and, and you know, God bless them, also MI6 as, as being part of it. So this was Gerasimov giving a speech about essentially what the Russians saw as the Western way of war. But I gave it that title, and it's clear proof that a snappy title is worth more than any actual words in the post itself. <laughs> this notion of the Gerasimov doctrine found favour, particularly because then after 2014 in Crimea, there was this notion that somehow what had happened in Crimea represented sort of the way Russians would take territory in the future, even though actually it was just simply how they took Crimea because of the particular circumstances of that. And since then, I have tried repeatedly to get rid of this thing. I have written articles in foreign policy, in the Berlin Journal and so forth elsewhere. I've written an, an article in Critical Science and Security, and it is all to no avail. I still keep finding that damn Gerasimov doctrine cropping up. So I think this is the albatross I will carry around my neck. <laughs> For, for the rest of time. The only good thing to be said about the Gerasimov Doctrine, and this is something that was raised by Mike Kaufman, uh, an analyst at uh, CNA in, in DC, who said that the good thing about the Gerasimov Doctrine is you know if someone uses it, they know nothing about Russian military thinking, and therefore you can safely ignore everything else they say. Yeah, and isn't that fascinating how once something has gained traction, even if you actually say, look, 
I made it up, guys, like it doesn't exist. It actually doesn't necessarily stop that idea from still like a rolling stone gathering moss because obviously there's some kind of receptivity to that idea in the sociocultural context. Well, I think for several reasons. I mean, the fact is that, yes, of course, it, it's always great to think that the other side is you know, taller than they really are. We always have this assumption that because we know our own flaws and we have a tendency to assume that the other side is that much stronger. Witness, for example, the easy assumptions that basically Russia was going to conquer Ukraine in two weeks, which was very widely held within sort of the defense analyst community. Secondly, it's the fact that there is always this, this desire to sort of be, be the one to grab what is going to be the next wave, if I can mix my metaphors. And thirdly, look, it's, and obviously this is more than just Twitter, but if you think of Twitter, you can post something that is eye-catchingly dramatic and, and indeed totally wrong, and you'll probably get lots and lots of retweets and likes. When you then post your attraction, sorry guys, it turns out actually that this was whatever, you know, a myth or a misunderstanding or whatever else, you will invariably get vastly fewer retweets because that's not exciting. Now, okay, that's just Twitter. But in that respect, I think Twitter is in many ways a, a good metaphor for how the modern information space goes. And, you know, you had all kinds of, if I'm blunt, hucksters who wanted to sort of jump on this particular bandwagon. It's a good way of saying, you know, this is, this is why we now face this extraordinary new challenge from Russia. And that's why you ought to give me that $250,000 grant to study it and, and write the report. You had people who just simply wanted to sound as if they're well-informed, you know, and, and all kinds of different, different reasons why these ideas go traction. And the thing is, it's not just about the Gerasimov Doctrine. Obviously, that is particularly painful to me because it's it's my particularly sort of poisonous legacy. But I mean, I think we we see this quite often that in fact, you know, stuff doesn't change anywhere as dramatically as we might think. And in practice, many of this is a, one of the themes of my book. Many of the underlying light motifs of how states conflict are very very familiar. Yes, new environment, new idiom, and so forth. Yeah, and you do talk a lot, like I actually really enjoyed those discussions in the book when you talk about the power of narratives and stories. And as I mentioned, sort of that weaponization of culture, which I found very interesting. You mentioned at one point that war is more and more becoming, I'm going to quote you here, a war of stories. I really loved that phrase. And you said that this war of stories is being fought more in the imagination and collective will of a society. First of all, I just loved the way that you articulated that, but I also wondered how you respond then to the current very kinetic hot military conflict that we're seeing in the war in Ukraine. Of course, there have been other very kinetic conflicts going on, but do you still see that that phrase holds that primarily war will be fought in the imagination and the collective will of a society, or do you think we're sort of transitioning into a place where we're going back in a way to that more, you know, your military capability determines the way in which you're going to fight a war? I mean, look, this is a situation when you know I write this book that says, look, modern conflict is increasingly not going to be about old-fashioned warfare because the kind of kinetic way of warfare is becoming you know, much more expensive in all kinds of different ways, much less effective. And then almost immediately after the book comes out, Putin invades Ukraine. Obviously, my first thought was, oh, no, how terrible for Ukraine. My second thought was, oh, no, how terrible for the Russians. And my third thought was obviously, oh, no, how terrible for me. <laughs> but actually, 
as the dust settles, I mean, I think the, the one the one key lesson that really everyone should should learn is Putin should have read my book. <laughs> if he had, he would not have invaded. I mean, joking apart, two points really worth making. First of all, right up to the point when he invaded, Putin was winning. He had assembled this huge force along Ukraine's borders on Russian territory, so entirely within international law and so forth. However, under the shadow of the threat of Russian invasion, the Ukrainian economy was tanking. Who was going to invest in Ukraine in those circumstances? You know, it was really in crisis. Essentially, Ukraine had lost access to international financial markets. At the same time, you had a steady flow of Western guests, visitors heading to Moscow to see Putin to hopefully try and stave off the potential for war. And indeed, there were certain European governments that were already trying to bring pressure to bear on President Zelensky of Ukraine to get him to give concessions to the Russians. Putin really had been this three-dimensional geopolitical chess mastermind that we're sometimes told. He would have just sat back and let this process continue. He invaded, and I would suggest that basically the, the, the point when his first tank crossed the border was actually the point at which he started to lose. So, I mean, I think actually it has demonstrated that non-military means were actually a lot more effective than the military means. But the second point I'd make is what we're seeing with Ukraine is actually that there are two wars going on. There is indeed a very 20th century war that's taking place within Ukraine. Ukrainians against the Russians with tanks and guns and so forth. There is also a very, very 21st century war being fought between the West and Russia, one that is precisely being fought through sanctions, through cultural, political, legal, and a whole variety of other means, non-kinetically. And obviously, that operates on different timeline, different pace, different kinds of impacts. But nonetheless, you know, it is a separate war. We have never seen the level of economic warfare that is currently being waged by the West against a country, especially a you know, country that is so interconnected with, with the global finance and commerce as Russia. You know, we have absolutely no idea how this is going to play out because there are no examples. This is not like Iran. This is not like North Korea. So I think th this is the thing. It's actually demonstrated the degree to which Ukraine is fighting a kinetic war because, frankly, Ukraine doesn't have a choice. We do have a choice, and we have decided instead to operate on these other means. And actually, if you look at what the Ukrainians are doing, they are in many ways, and it's, it's over-dramatizing to call it warfare, but nonetheless, they are fighting very strong information campaigns and political campaigns in the West precisely to try and ensure that they get what they want. If you look at Zelensky, he tends to break all the rules of international diplomacy. He calls countries out. He refuses to allow the German president to visit. You know, he does all these things. I mean, he is absolutely brilliant, it has to be said, at what he's doing. Although clearly, when it comes down to it, the shooting war is determining what's happening on the ground. One has to appreciate the huge array of non-shooting wars which are going on around it and fueling it. Yeah, it's such a good point. And you can definitely see that there's a massive information and communication war that is going on at the same time. And I agree with you. It seems like as soon as those Russian tanks rolled across the border into Ukraine, Russia started to lose at least that dimension, at least if we're talking about with Western audiences. How do you sort of make sense of that, that Putin actually decided to take this step that then put him in some ways on the back foot as opposed to on the front foot? I mean, I think I, I give multiple answers. I mean, look, the first most important point to make is clearly I don't know. Broadly speaking, though, I think there's a few points to make. First of all, I don't honestly think Putin understands the 21st century. I mean, remember, this is a guy who, you know, we're told doesn't have a smartphone, 
and thinks that the internet was invented by the CIA. But more broadly, his notions of power and what makes a, a great power, and this is you know, clearly a key element of his ambition is to have Russia recognized as a great power. It's a very 19th century geopolitical perspective. You know, a great power is defined by the fact that it has a sphere of influence, countries that are you know, whose sovereignty is subordinate to the metropolis. A great power has to have a role, and a role means a veto, in every single major issue around the world, whether or not it's directly involved. And thirdly, a great power gets to every now and then break the rules. You know, he doesn't want to completely shatter the international system, but a great power every now and then says, sorry, guys, but we needed to do this. And in part, look, he believes that that's what America has got. And in some aspects, he's not entirely wrong. But still, that's his ambition. You know, so he sees power in those terms, not in very 21st century terms of dynamic economies, leading edge technologies, of soft power and connectivity and, and all that. So you know, ultimately, there is a certain lack of sophistication to his perspective of what is success. Secondly, it is clear that he had a particular notion of what Ukraine was. I mean, the irony is his plan is actually sensible. If the world was actually as it is clearly in Putin's head, I think he genuinely believes that Ukraine is a, not really a real state, that the Ukrainian people were not happy under their quote unquote neo-Nazi American controlled regime, and that at the slightest push, it would collapse. And therefore, this was really envisaged not as an invasion, but as a police action that you could send a couple of companies of paratroopers motoring into the center of Kyiv to arrest the government and impose a new puppet proxy regime, that you could have much of your force being based not of regular military, but of National Guard, domestic security forces, because actually you know, you're going to be facing maybe a few riots rather than full-scale mechanized warfare. The thing was that for years, Putin has, in effect, been building a system in which no one can tell him that when he's wrong. I mean, we've heard this for years. I remember talking to, to an you know, ex-Russian spy who said, look, we've learned you don't take bad news to the Tsar's table. And the final point is, look, he's 69, coming up for 70 this October. He clearly isn't as healthy as he was, and he might have something seriously wrong with him. We don't know. I think that certainly from his point of view, time is not necessarily his friend. In the past, he's known that he can outweigh democratic antagonists because they're going to have elections and such like. Now, he maybe didn't feel he had five years or 10 years to wait. And also the calculus was probably one that, that worked for him, he thought, in that the Russians felt that they were basically at the peak of their military modernization. So I think put that lot together, you know, a rather sort of simplistic and dated notion of power, a sense that Ukraine was just basically there for the picking, and a sense that if not now, when? And I think that may explain quite why he, he made the move when he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was interesting in the book as well how you unpick the threads of this journey for Putin or for Russia possibly from really wanting to increase its soft power, its power of attraction, to maybe coming to a place where it's resigning itself or, you know, Russia itself or maybe Putin himself to understanding that if he cannot be loved, then at least he can be feared or something of this sort a la Machiavelli. Mm -hmm. We have all of these different issue domains in which warfare is being waged, what would you say is maybe one way to respond to this new terrain within which we're situated? I mean, if there's one area that I think uh, we do need to constantly sort of think about, and the one which actually sort of relates to most of the, these domains, it's resilience. 
it's actually the degree to which, whether it's with information, whether it's with lawfare, all these other kind of approaches, they tend to exploit existing vulnerabilities rather than create them. You know, it's because there are populations who feel disenfranchised that they're more willing to listen to foreign disinformation. It's because we have economic systems which are entirely or overly dependent on foreign countries that we become vulnerable and so forth. So really, it's a lot of it is actually about essentially scanning the, the potential vulnerabilities that we have at home and actually fixing them. Because this is not a realm in which actually things like deterrence, that classic standby of, of sort of old fashioned power works so well. But on the other hand, deterrence by denial, the thought of come at me if you want, but you're going to put all these resources into it and you're going to fail. That is actually a lot more effective than deterrence by punishment. So I think they're basically addressing our own flaws, being honest about them. That's the hardest thing of all. And then doing something about them. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. Look at ourselves first, which is often harder, but much more useful. So how can listeners find out more about your work and about your books? I mean, the best single place is I, mean, I, I have a, a blog and website called In Moscow Shadows, which I tend to sort of flag up when I have sort of new books coming out and, and so forth. And I also have a podcast of the same name, In Moscow Shadows. So either of those are the, are the, are the best places. Awesome. And I'll put a link to all of those in the show notes. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Mark. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise, good to be talked. You've been listening to the update from Key Podcast. Thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. See you next episode.